the four-wheel chase experience. I love it. The following is a production by Cutting to the Chase podcast. Emmanuel Barbari, what's up, man? We talked uh, not that long ago, right before the winter meetings, and here we are post-winter meetings. Uh, what's happening in your world? Not much. Juan Soto happened, and now the Yankees have the guy we had discussed at the tail end of our conversation, tail end of our, our podcast together, and I thought, uh, you and I were talking about it, thought it was the necessary move, the ultimate move that would put them in the best spot to win this year, and whether it's a one-year commitment, a long-term commitment, He's the guy, and it's going to be a lot of fun watching him and Aaron Judge uh, back-to-back in the same lineup. So Juan Soto has been a big part of the last couple weeks, and yeah, everything else is, is good in my world. How are you? Doing pretty well. It's Friday as we record this, so it's always a good start to the weekend in general. It's you yeah. know five, almost five thirty on a Friday, so looking forward to the holidays coming up here in about a week. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing for the holidays? You got you know, a lot of crazy stuff going on. Nothing crazy. I have some Siena basketball basketball games in general over the next week. But outside of that, doing a little WFAN stuff, a show, nice. a few update shifts. And I got family in town. My sister's home. My, my brother is actually flying home as we speak. Uh, him and his girlfriend from California. So it'll be all five of us, same family, under the same roof, which kind of rarely happens. Once you get to uh, adult age... Uh, you, you don't go back again outside of COVID when we when we all were hunkered down here. You don't get back to that time together as a family where you're just all in the same house together. So we'll definitely make the most of that over the next week or so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's always a fun time this time of year. Uh, and, you know, as oh, I guess you're not doing any uh, basketball. Not, obviously not tonight. Or do you have games this weekend that you have uh, going on? Seattle women and Canisius tomorrow. Two o'clock, Mac opener. So, so that'll be the lone game for this weekend, and then next week we'll have, I think, two or three games. I think it's three games plus a few things with the fan. But Saturday was the circled one for this week, so just been methodically prepping throughout the week. Yeah, definitely. We were talking about that last week, or uh, not that long ago when we talked. What two weeks ago, I guess, and uh, just your preparation and everything, and so. That's awesome. The you know it's cool to see what you're doing with Sienna, the fan. I'll have to turn the fan on because it's been a little while since uh, I've had it on. It was over the summertime. I was really starting to kind of branch out. I've, I kind of listened to certain stations and I was kind of checking it out, getting kind of uh, bored or you know I was just ready to you know see what else was happening. And that's how we of course like kind of interacted again because we had our ESNY days, um, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember him on the radio. So, <laughs> where, are you, over the- where are you based out of again? Uh, I'm in Virginia. Gotcha. So, yeah. I, well, you could probably, late at night, you could get the fan on 660 because the stretch, the reach is really far uh, with that signal from 660 AM. Uh, that's old school because we have the, the Odyssey is. app and, and streaming now where you can catch the fan globally, basically wherever you are. And without hesitation, uh, you can get live programming and rewind it 24-7. But I really think if you're in a clear spot, Virginia, 6.60 a.m. from New York would stretch down to you. So that's a, that's a perk of being 
along the along the eastern seaboard. Yeah, in fact, I just turn on the, the on the Bose uh, soundbar. I'll, I'll say, "Hey, play," and then it starts. So that's always good too. But yeah, you know what? Right. That reminds me. Back growing up uh, here in Virginia, uh, you could get the Yankee games on when they were on w- WCBS 880. Could hear those games at nighttime in the car in Virginia. It would go out a little bit, but it was pretty good. It was kind of crazy to. Be like, oh, I'm getting like local New York stuff right now. That's the cool thing about the AM <laughs> dial, right? It's become outdated to many, and FM is certainly yeah. the stronger signal when you're in the car and you're local and you can hear HD FM radio. But the cool thing about AM is it still stretches that that distance, especially for the stations like FAN that are as powerful as they are. It's not the case for every single station, but I've always found that super cool how it stands the test of time, the strength and, and the reach of the AM dial. It may not sound as pristine, maybe a little bit more grainy, a little bit more old yeah. school, but if you're in Virginia and you can be listening on a dial to a New York radio station, I think that's something. I've always found that really cool about radio. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, And baseball is such a, a radio, old-timey radio type of, uh, you know, you think back – listening to games on the radio, probably more so than other sports for the most part. I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I'll listen to whatever games on the radio, but I think for me, it's always like the old school baseball slash radio dynamic, which is always fun. And there's so many legendary radio broadcasters too. Oh yeah. I think there's an element to baseball on the radio that really never gets old. You think, okay, what's the future of radio play by play? I think there's always a future to it when you have people driving in cars and you have people who can't can't see as well even uh, and, and the ability to describe the game for them and the ability to paint a picture. I think there's always a market for that. But baseball on the radio, putting aside all the description elements and bringing the game to life, I think there's just an advantage to baseball on the radio and it being that that familiar friend that you have. Like, there are younger fans that you talk to nowadays who still say, oh, I prefer listening to to baseball on the radio. It's not even an old school thing. Uh, it's just that casual conversation you're having with the passionate diehard fan on a day-in, day-out basis. And literal relationships are forged from that dynamic of, you know, being out in the backyard, hanging out on a summer afternoon. You could listen to the Yankee game. You could listen to any game on the radio and that's nothing against the TV broadcast, but you're just in certain settings. You're in barbecue settings or, or on the road where you're just not going to consume a TV broadcast. And that's when the the conversational element of the radio game takes over. Yeah. And, you know, baseball, it's, I think it's such a cool art in general with the radio and how broadcasters describe the game and have to be, you know, you got to say so much, have so much um, specifics, and was that something that you had to think about when you were doing the game on the radio, the Yankee Pirates series? Uh, did you have to, I mean, it was your first Major League Baseball game that you were broadcasting anyways, but were you try? I know we kind of talked about this last time too, but like, uh, were you trying to, I don't know, describe things a certain way, or did it come natural because you've been doing media and broadcasting in general, or uh, what was the biggest challenge for you? Yeah, I, I would say over time I developed a style of how to call a baseball game on the radio. And when you gain that repetition, you have certain, you avoid crutches because you don't want to use the same words over and over again and describe the same things the same way. But you do develop a vernacular that's specific to you. Uh, you have ways that you describe things versus X, Y, Z 
other broadcaster. So I think with reps, with minor league reps, doing the Cape Cod Baseball League a few years ago, coming up through Fordham, doing Fordham baseball games, I started at the end of my high school career in the in the Hamptons Collegiate Baseball League where I'd drive out 50 minutes to Eastern Long Island and I would be broadcasting summer ball, kind of like Cape Cod, just at a little bit of a lower level, one of those summer leagues in the Northeast. So through all those repetitions, you figure out what you like, what you don't like, you listen to other broadcasters, you pretty much take things from them because without taking things from other broadcasters, it feels like plagiarism, but without taking it, no one would have anything to say. Uh, Like there's only so many words that could be used to describe a certain action or a certain event within a game. So over time, you develop that vocabulary. You have an idea of the way that you call the game. You're always improving it. You're always getting better at it. But uh, to answer your question more directly on the on the Pittsburgh series, it was just applying what I knew was my vocabulary and vernacular and just doing it at a different level. And I think I never walk out of a game thinking, oh, I described everything that I needed to describe in that given game. There's so much, there's so much to describe. Uh, yeah. Like if I ever walked out of a game thinking I completely did that justice, I think I'm lying to myself because there's the ballpark, there are sights, there are sounds, there are smells, there's the there's the skyline beyond the ballpark at PNC Park in Pittsburgh. There's actions that you never describe. Uh, so and so hit a ground ball to short, and the play's over, the inning's over. But there are probably a million little actions within the at bat that you didn't describe how they're moving, you know, the the toe tap in their stance, or or how open, wide open their stance is, or what what the pitcher did before he got into his windup. So little things like that, you can never describe everything, or else you drive yourself nuts. But that's part of the challenge and the beauty of it is I didn't feel like I walked out of that series having described everything I needed to. But you pick your spots and. You can't do everything or else you would hit people over the head. So it's kind of yeah. like a ever-evolving process of description. There's like this perfect balance of saying the right things in the right moment and then letting the uh, just the crowd noise fill in the uh, you know the radio and right. you don't hear anything for like two seconds. And, you know, I think at, at the same time, it's kind of like when I'm listening to a game on the radio, I'm listening to it. And it's more so if I'm driving most likely. But even so, I'm, I'm listening to it. I probably there's probably a certain white noise where I don't even notice or think about something, but then I'm also tapped into the point where it's like, oh, they just described X and I didn't even really think about it. It's just like I know what's happened. They're painting that picture in my mind. I don't know how hockey broadcasters do games, uh, TV, radio. It's so fast. I always wonder like, how are they able to? I mean, I know they have monitors, but it's like, how are they able to describe the call as fast as it is? With baseball, it's you know got that slower pace, even with the uh, the pitch clock, but um, you know, and I guess, I mean, it was your first series, really, your only series so far, but was it difficult or was it weird to have that pitch clock and that pace or did it feel kind of, because uh, you've done baseball games in general, was it easier, harder, or kind of neutral on that? I think it would have been hard had I had no experience with the yeah. pitch clock before, but the pitch clock was implemented in the minor leagues before it got to the major leagues. It was kind of a test run, a trial run. And when I was doing minor league baseball, there was a pitch clock. So I had I had a year plus to adapt to it and to figure out the proper rhythm with it. And, and I still feel like I'm figuring that out. I don't think I'm quite there because it's a way different game 
when you have to pitch in 18 seconds or or less with runners on than if you have unlimited time or almost unlimited time. And it impacts, especially in the middle of a game, when the game isn't quite dictating. The game is always the the top vehicle, but if it's 8-1 to in the fifth inning, that's more story time, or you could weave in more background information than you would in a moment where what's happening completely dictates the conversation. When there's a pitch clock, you have to be very wary of not overstepping and not overrunning the pitch. So you got to divide your stories and be concise. And if you're going to tell a story on something, you want better bullet points and better fragments that are short and let you hash out the story as opposed to long-winded run-on sentences that you can't finish, then all of a sudden the pitch comes in. So that's different than when you have 30 seconds in between a pitch or 14, 15 seconds in between a pitch. So that's something I learned a little bit how to do leading into that first Major League Series, but it's something I'm still keeping a eye and ear on because I don't think it'll ever be, I'd ever be perfect when it's that rapid. Do you keep score when you're broadcasting? Yeah. Or, yeah, I think uh, every broadcaster does, right? I think that's the most important thing you got to do because you... Yeah. You're keeping track of what's in front of you. Like if the runner's on, if the runner's on first and the ball's hit into the gap, sure you might know who just hit that single and it's on first. But it's a written record of oh so and so taking off for second, around second, headed for third. Like like that's in front of you. And then when you get later into the game, instead of like scouring the internet for what happened last at bat, right there, Judge yeah. doubled his first time or doubled back in the second inning. Or, or hit his home run in the in the second inning. Then right there on your scorecard, you have that he has 31 homers on the year. So Judge hit his 32nd home run uh, back in the second inning. Like all that information is contained in front of you, and it's like a live written document as the game moves along. And then you have your pitching lines. So so you yeah. know so and so through five innings, and now they now they're out for so and so. I think it's the most crucial part of baseball broadcasting is the scorecard. Got to do more background than that obviously, but I think there's nothing more important than the scorecard. When I was an intern for a season in uh, Augusta for the Green Jackets in single A in 2016, I was uh, I took on doing like that stringer role, which is where you're keeping score on you know, like the, the computer or the yeah. specific uh, program. That was very challenging because I, you know, some of that stuff was easy, but then I was like, I don't know what we're rolling this. Like, what would this be? Like, what's the what's the specific keys for like what just happened here? Luckily, yeah, it's like a process often. to learn how to string yeah. and how to enter certain actions and certain plays, oh. and then it, it feels easy when someone's walking on five pitches, but then when the bases are loaded and somebody hits a two-run double in the gap and you got to yes. advance the runners around the bases and then oh, if you God, fall behind yeah. if you do it wrong and then you have to fix it you might fall behind with the pitch clock now you might fall behind five or six pitches or a couple of that bats and then all of a sudden you're like writing down what happens yes. so then you can catch up after you fix your mistake you would think it's yep. easy on the internet it's to not. string a baseball game in the minors but it is not it is no easy task so i i completely understand uh, what that process is like and like part of my role, so I did like, I did, I had too many hats. I was the media relations guy, media relations and marketing guy in general, but so I was doing media and I was doing marketing stuff. But, um, so I had two jobs basically, but part of it was I had to, I had to run the, uh, box scores down to the, to the, uh, uh, the clubhouses after yeah. each game. And my, the, the guy that was, um, 
the the main stringer, he said to me day one, he was like, "What you have to do?" He was like, "Get the get the box scores down to the manager and just get the hell out of the uh, clubhouse because they're gonna want to go over everything right then and there." And he's like, "I am," and, and you know, so what would happen is they would say, "Hey, we want to talk to the stringer or the official scorer," and uh, and the, the guy that was the official scorer was like, "I'm not doing it day of. I will do it the next game, like the next day. They're gonna have to wait." So my thing was get in and get out before they could see me and say, "Hey, we want to talk to him now." And that would happen. And I would be like, "He'll get you in the morning." He's like, I, "They're not. He's not gonna do it now. He's already said this." So, um, but yeah, because I was showing the box scores and I realized my work if I was doing that game was on that box score. So there was an error or an issue. <laughs> it was partly me because I'm the one that screwed it up. Luckily, I didn't have to do it too much and it worked out for the most part, but that was kind of stressful. Yeah, the things you wouldn't know go into <laughs> stringing games, being the media relations guy yeah. for games. Like, you know, the shoot the messenger phrase that that actually comes in a lot when you're just running a box score or dropping something off and a manager rightfully so wants to know about a scoring decision but right. that wasn't even you you're just you're just dropping off the box scores so yep. that's behind the scenes inside baseball for lack of a better term obviously that yeah. other people from the outside well, would not know exists within within any any part <laughs> of the press box yeah i learned a lot like uh logan webb was in that was on that team before he had i think it was tommy john so just a name drop like you know a big name there but anyway we'll finally get into Juan Soto because that's the main reason you texted me a few weeks ago and said hey let's talk Soto so that's what we're doing <laughs> so um in general though um you, you you did say that before that trade went down before the winter meetings were even starting that you thought the Soto trade was pretty much imminent and that was pretty much the case it was pretty much always a foregone conclusion when that trade was actually going down that day we kept hearing reports like it's close it's close it's not done yet but it finally got done so were you surprised by the package that's going back the other way to san diego or are you thinking wow they just got soto for is that all they had to give up like what was your thoughts on that trade in that package i think it was the right value considering that he's in the final year of a contract he's in a walk year so that's the package I would have expected them to trade. Let's say they had gotten Soto at the deadline this year, and he had, what, 25 home runs already and had a 420 on-base percentage, and you're acquiring Juan Soto, but he's a rental. So I think that is the right value, the right package. They gave up a lot. They gave up a lot of pitching depth. But it's not the same type of package where, let's say, he had three years of control or you're getting him long-term automatically, like it was a given that Soto would be with the Yankees for 10 years, then it would be a much bigger bigger price. Or if he had three years of control until free agency, you might have seen the Padres demanding an Anthony Volpe or a Jason Dominguez. That never happened. But I think when I saw the package, I was more curious whether the Yankees would get it done without a Michael King or without a Drew Thorpe. I think those are the two top guys because King has now proven he can do it at the big league level as a starter, not just as a reliever. And the question, can he sustain it and have 25, 30 starts a year and become the marquee pitcher that he possibly can be? Thorpe hasn't done it. He hasn't done it at the major league level, but he can, and he projects as possibly a front-end guy in the big league. So those are the two guys. Vasquez and Brito, I think, can turn into really good pieces in a rotation or in the bullpen, if not the rotation. But they clearly weren't the headliners. Then Higashioka, Padres needed catching depth, but he's obviously not the centerpiece of the deal. I thought it was a good package. I was wondering whether they would do it without King or Thorpe and get away with that. But 
it's Juan Soto. You're trying to win. If the Padres are going to hold it up, and I'm sure that was a hold up, you don't give us King, the deal isn't happening. You don't give us Thorpe, the deal isn't happening. You make the deal. It's Juan Soto, you have to win. And I think the Yankees can live with, uh, you love Michael King. You love the possibility of a Drew Thorpe. You love what Brito could have been in a swingman role or Vasquez developing into a starting pitcher and what Higashioka has brought to the organization. But having Soto here, you can absorb the loss of a Michael King. And of course, we'll see what happens with Yamamoto and how the Yankees are going to fill out this rotation. But you can absorb those losses. I don't think you could have absorbed another year of no impact bat. Not to say Rizzo couldn't have bounced back, but no real protection to judge in that lineup, which was the case for a vast majority of last year. You needed needed a big-time offensive move like this, and I think it was worth the price of of any sort of pitching package, pitching depth package that they were going to give up. Well, for the first time in his career, Soto played in every game last season. He led the league in walks, uh, hits home runs, and he hit 35 home runs in Petco Park, which we know isn't exactly Yankee Stadium in terms of hitting, you know, hitters ballpark. So, I mean, right away, he gives you everything, the peripherals of what you expect and, you know, what you expect will happen in a walk year, no less. So, uh, Yankee Stadium, Aaron Judge, and all those, I mean, depending on what the, the lineup looks like, you mentioned Rizzo and we know how good he can be. And we'll see coming off, I guess it was that concussion, right? Uh, John Carlos Stanton. I don't know what to expect from him outside of like, you know, he'll give you like two weeks of him, you know, five, six home runs in like a week or two or whatever, but you know, judge and a lot of potential in terms of power in, in that lineup. And then Yankee stadium in general. I mean, what kind of numbers are you expecting out of Soto? And it's going to be his first uh, time in the American league, obviously, but he can handle it, right? He can handle New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would think a player of the caliber Juan Soto can handle the American yeah. league can handle New York. Yeah. just fine. I think his moxie and his swagger plays perfectly. Uh, yep. To New York, he he thrives in the spotlight. We saw that at at what nineteen years old coming up yeah. in the big leagues, and then a couple World of years series. later in the World Series at twenty one years old, he's dismantling the Yankees' arch nemesis, the Houston Astros, on the biggest Berlander, stage. No big uh, deal. I, I would think, yeah, <laughs> the, no big deal. I, I, I would yeah. say coming to New York, the Soto Shuffle, he, yeah, he can handle that spotlight. TBD on what the numbers look like, but I think the most important part of this move is it reduces the reliance on some of the things you're talking about. Sure, Rizzo can bounce back. I believe Stanton can bounce back. Some other people are skeptical on that, but I think to an extent, he can be a really useful player in this lineup, and he can be a feared hitter in this lineup that lengthens it out even more. But you're not relying on it anymore. You're not saying we need... Giancarlo Stanton to bounce back. We're not saying we need Anthony Rizzo to back up Aaron Judge and hit 35 home runs. You're not saying we need any of that. Anything they give you now, I'm not going to say it's gravy because you still need them to produce to some extent, but anything they give you is a plus because you have thunder in the middle of that lineup, and provided Aaron Judge doesn't miss half a season, which you never go into a season thinking that's going to happen. If Judge plays 120 to 150 games and Soto's there and he's as durable as we know he is, and he has as much thunder in his bat as we know he has, and he works his walks and gets on base at this historic clip that we know he he does year after year after year, I think you know you're getting offensive production. And I think a lot of people are underrating the, the Alex Verdugo move as well. I'm not saying he's some sort of prolific top-of-the-barrel top type hitter, but he's a 280, 280, 285 
double gap to gap type presence from the left side, which the Yankees have desperately needed. And he's lengthening out that lineup. He, unless the Yankees decide he's going to lead off, I would think he's going to hit sixth or seventh in that Yankee lineup. Verdugo is way better than a six or seven hitter, just in my eyes. So you add in Stanton, you add in Torres, you add in Rizzo, you have Soto backing up Judge. You have the makings, and Anthony Volpe, I think, can only improve on what he did as a rookie. You have the makings of a pretty behemoth of a lineup, and we wouldn't be having the same conversation without Soto, which I think shows how much of a game changer he is, not only what he brings, but the way he lengthens it all out. So you expect that he'll end up eventually, I mean, he's a Boris client, he's going to test the market most likely, but, I mean, they always do, right? But you expect he'll probably end up, like, you're expecting he's going he's gonna to be there long-term, right? I don't think I can expect anything him being long-term. I thought you were actually going to ask, will he test free agency? Of course he will, yeah, as a course. Boris client. Yeah. I think I fully expect that to happen. I don't think, my initial read was, I don't think they make this move without an eye on keeping him long-term. Like, you're not going to give up major pitching capital or part with both King and Thorpe if you're not thinking, okay, we have the chance to re-sign him. I don't think they know they're re-signing him because free agency is a life of its own. Heck, like Aaron Judge, you saw the Padres nearly swoop in, offer him $410 million, and, and then maybe maybe he leaves the Giants, almost match what the Yankees offered him. So Aaron Judge, who is the Yankee, he's the captain, and the Yankees, by all accounts, of course, needed to keep him, and still free agency takes on a life of its own. So I don't think the Yankees know they're keeping Soto, but I think by making this move, and they haven't had that much of a willingness in the past to give up on pitching depth so easily like this, I think they really want to keep him long-term, but at a bare minimum, there's a rental-type package. You can maybe live with him walking away, but what you know is that he's in a walk year and players show out and ball out in their walk years, and you're going to benefit from not only having Juan Soto, but walk year Juan Soto. Yeah. Then again, I'm thinking out loud here, if he's walk year Juan Soto and hits you 40, 45 home runs, and he's hitting 300 with a 440 on base percentage behind Aaron Judge in that lineup. First of all, you might win a World Series. Who knows how far you're going into the postseason. But also, if you see those numbers and you see him thrive in New York, the contract kind of pays for itself. I, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to hold on to him and keep him, which is why I lean towards him being here long term. If you, if you, you know, can project... Uh a normal Juan Soto type of a season, and let's just say, you know, maybe even under, not underachieving, that's not the word I'm trying to say, but uh, maybe even under, like, we will probably or potentially would do. Let's say he hits, like, 290, 30 home runs, walks a lot, you know, the normal stuff, and like I said, he'll probably hit, potentially hit more than 30 for sure, but um, let's just say it's that much. What do you think that contract size looks like? 10 years, 350, 400 million, or what kind of number do you think that you'd, you'd put on that? Well, he'll still be 25 when he hits free yeah. agency, which is yeah. the remarkable part that we've all been thinking <laughs> right. about as he's inch yeah. closer to free agency. He'll yeah. still be 25. I think he's getting more than 10 years. I, I do. Unless there's 12. some sort of 10-year deal with an opt-out where he can then again test free agency at age 30 or something like that. I think he's getting 12, 13, maybe even 14 years from, from a team. Then that's where it gets interesting because he's definitely going to make, in my eyes, he's going to make north of $40 million a year. So if you get near the 14, 15 year range, what are we talking? Way above $500 million. I'm just doing quick math here. And I'm actually going to pull out 
pull out the calculator because I'm not nearly good enough. Once we get to the numbers 14 and 15, these aren't these aren't round numbers. So let's go. Yeah, we're talking. Oh, this is going to get close to 600 million dollars for Soto. Oh yeah. If it's going to be a yeah. 13 or 14 year deal. And that's even with a normal Soto year. He doesn't need to hit 40 home runs this year for right. that to happen. The current yeah. version of Juan Soto coming off 35 home runs and a 420 on base percentage and leading the league in walks would make that easy. So if he just has that year with the Yankees, he's, he's making that. Now, if he has a year beyond that, it inflates the value. What are we talking? Closer to Otani numbers now. We're talking 650, closing in on 700. Now, I don't think it'll get that high, but yeah, yeah. it's possible. If teams get in bidding wars, there are going to be multiple teams in on him. The Mets are, by all accounts, want to be involved. And Steve Cohen is going to get involved. So could it get 650, 700? Who knows? But I think at a bare minimum now, we're looking at 13, 14 years and, and north of $40 million a year. Especially, like, we were just looking at it if he just does normal stuff. Let's say he wins the MVP. I mean, that value is just going to skyrocket anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine, Imagine what it could be if he has a vintage year. He could have done that anywhere, by the way. He could have done that with San Diego. He could have done that with the Nationals. He could have done that anywhere else he got traded. If he had a vintage Soto year, the number goes up. Now, given that he'll have done it with the Yankees and other potent teams, high-market teams will be bidding on him, and now he has the Yankees automatically involved in the conversation, which we know... Agents and players love the Yankees to be involved in these conversations because it inherently drives up the price, even if the Yankees don't have true interest in that player. You know the Yankees are interested in this player. He's on the team. He's, he's coming off a season with the Yankees. So the fact that he automatically has the Yankees involved, they may not want it. All these teams may not want it to get that high. I think the number, even with the normal Soto year, but I think it's going to be beyond a normal Soto year, the number is going to get driven up to, to astronomical levels. Right, yeah. So what's next? Is is it Yamamoto? Like, what's the next move for this team? I wish I could say slam dunk Yamamoto, right. but we're, we're seeing these reports of Betts, Freeman, Otani being involved on the same meeting with Yamamoto. You know the Mets are involved. I think oh, yes. we have a general inkling. We have a sense of what the market is for Yamamoto. Like, I'd actually be shocked if it's not one of Yankees, Dodgers, Mets from Yamamoto. I'd be, I'd be genuinely surprised. So... I'm not saying I know where he's going, but I know it's one of those three. And I'd be stunned if it's not one of those three. Yeah. I thought a week ago, my gut was telling me, after Soto, Yankees are going all in on 2024. They need to plug a spot in the rotation, minus Michael King. And not only plug, but they're trying to team a co-ace almost. Cole will be the ace, but a 1-1-A situation with Garrett Cole. Yamamoto is going to be a Yankee. I, I thought that firmly as of a week ago. Seeing these reports about the Dodgers, also now knowing it's not just 10700 for Otani, it's $2 million a year for the next 10 years for Otani, and yeah. massive flexibility for the Dodgers to do anything they want. They've already added glass now and extended glass now. I think the Dodgers have a really good shot. I, I think it's the Dodgers or the Yankees. I mean, because a week ago, I thought it was going to be the Yankees, and then the Dodgers got it to a situation where they have flexibility on top of what we already know about them. If it's not the Yankees, it's the Dodgers, but I still think he wants a spotlight. And the Dodgers are a spotlight, but he wants to be the guy to a certain extent. He wants to be the import. He wants to be the player. And he wants the pinstripes. I, I, I do think there's an inkling of him that, that wants the pinstripes. So I think it'll be the Yankees, but I'd put a 50-50 toss-up Yankees-Dodgers. 
if it's not Yamamoto, where do they pivot? Or if they do get Yamamoto, do they do more? Or is that pretty much it in terms of big deals anyway? I could see a back end of the rotation type fill out move, but nothing special if Yamamoto gets here and it's Cole, Yamamoto, Rodon, Cortez, and then you're looking to fill out the back end of the rotation. If it's no Yamamoto, they will do something because now they gave up Michael King. In a world where they held on to Michael King, got Soto, and then it's no Yamamoto, they might sell themselves on, okay, Rodon's going to bounce back. We have Cole, Rodon, King, Nestor Cortez, and then maybe you bring back a Frankie Montas. So you, you could construct a rotation, and a pretty good one, with no Yamamoto but King in the picture. Now King's out of the picture. So I think with no Yamamoto, they hit the market. They either are in on a reunion with a Jordan Montgomery or they go after a Blake Snell. I'm not sure if I see Snell, but maybe they pivot with a no Yamamoto world. But I also think they can hit the trade market. Like, could they go get a Dylan Cease? We've seen reports of that. Or could they look for a reclamation project in a Shane Bieber uh, from the Guardians? So I could see moves like that with no Yamamoto now knowing that Michael King is not in the, in the picture. If King was in the picture, I could see them going silent with no Yamamoto. Now with King out of the picture, I think there's going to be a move. They're hoping it's Yamamoto, but if it's not Yamamoto, it's got to be something. What concerns you about this team and even the AL East in general, like uh, anyone else in the East? I mean, Tampa Bay is always kind of a threat, but then they just traded glass now. So it's like they'll probably still be a contender and all that. But like, you know, that team never keeps its stars. But then again, Tampa Bay gets rid of people. And then it's kind of, I mean, Snell did win the Cy Young this year, but he had struggled the year before that, I believe. Um, it's kind of It kind of feels like Tampa Bay knows when to get rid of people. But at the same time, you know, they're not keeping them because they don't want to pay them or they can't right. pay them. What I worry is not so much a division because Tampa's always a threat. Yankees are familiar with that. Baltimore is up and coming, and they burst upon the scene to more of an extent than I think anybody anybody anticipated last year. But they clearly have a nucleus. They're not capitalizing on it as much as I would have thought entering this offseason. We know they have situations with ownership and the lease on Camden Yards, and the fan base is just all up in arms about uh, the situation in Baltimore and, and wanting to see this core through to the end and wanting to become a power for the next 10, 15 years. I'm not convinced that's going to happen based on some of these reports we're seeing, but I thought they would have added more pitching or just more reinforcement than than I've seen. But they're still going to be really good. Like, just based on last year, I think Baltimore is a 92-plus oh, yeah. win team on paper, on its head, entering the season. So the Yankees know the threats in the division, but they're trying to build a team that, regardless of outside circumstances, is going to win 95-plus games, which puts you within a couple of games of a division title and automatically gets you a wild card. And in this day and age of baseball, as much as you love to win the division, that's not the path anymore, and we know it's not the path uh, seeing the last few years and beyond the last few years, but the last few years has exacerbated that uh, with the new format. So... My biggest fear is not the external, it's the internal. With Soto, I'm pretty confident in the lineup, and I think there are going to be some bounce backs, Rizzo, Stanton, in the lineup to go along with the Gibbons, despite injury risk, but the Gibbons of Judge and Soto. I worry about some of the question marks in the pitching staff. Cole is excellent. Cole is the most reliable starter in all of baseball. Cole is arguably the best starter in all of baseball. And just want to Cy Young. But he had such a great year last year in a year where they didn't make the postseason. So will there be regression? 
sure, there's regression off any Cy Young season. But how far does that regression go? I trust Cole enough where I don't think it's going to be a lot. But also, Cole has never gotten hurt in his Yankee career. He is the most durable pitcher in baseball. Is there a Cole injury for the first time this year? Who knows? You can't really worry about that stuff because you don't know it until it happens. But I worry about beyond Cole. I just mentioned the most secure aspect of the rotation and maybe some question mark with it. Let's go beyond Cole. Nestor Cortez bouncing back and showing he can pitch a full season when he hasn't over the last year plus, even though we know when he's on the field and when he's healthy and when he's right, he can be dynamic. Carlos Rodon. That's the biggest question mark of the season. I think he's going to bounce back because you look up and down his career, it is littered with years where he wasn't only struggling to produce, but that struggle was linked with injury question mark and injury problem. And he proceeded to bounce back. So I think Rodon has a bounce back in store, but that's a question mark entering the year. And then Yamamoto, no Yamamoto, vastly changes the rotation. They held on to Clark Schmidt, who I didn't mention when I was laying out the one through four previously, but but he could step up in a big-time way. He, he made a massive uh, step last year in his growth and development. So these questions of what the rotation will be and what some of these guys can provide, I look at as the biggest question mark entering the season. I, I never... I never really get too critical of the bullpen because I think Cashman has proven time and time again that's his strong suit. Every year he's going to find guys, even if they're not household names, that they're going to plug and play in the bullpen. They're going to get the best out of that area of the team. So the starting rotation, and they know it, which is why they're going after Yamamoto, is the biggest question mark. And I think the fact that I just uttered the blasphemy of putting a question mark next to Garrett Cole, who is the most secure aspect of the team, I'd argue, just the fact that he's never gotten hurt and could or is coming off a Cy Young season. And the Yankees didn't capitalize on that Cy Young season. It was a year where they missed the postseason. So now this year, when he maybe takes a little bit of a step back, they're trying to go for it all and they're trying to win a title. Clearly, the fact it starts there and then goes beyond to Will Rodon bounce back. What do you get out of well, what do you get out of Nestor Cortez? Or does Clark Schmidt take the next step? Will Yamamoto be a Yankee? Or are they going elsewhere? That's what I worry about most internally, not even externally. I'm sure you were just as surprised as everybody else when you saw the final Otani number of 700 million, but maybe more so based on the deferrals, the unique structure. Is this something that we're going to see going forward now? These these uh, these deferrals, or you think baseball is going to make it so that that doesn't really happen again? Or what are we looking at with this? Well, I've seen so many mixed reviews. Like some people you talk to, oh, it's great for the sport, like good on Otani, and then some people are like, oh, that's terrible. What are the Dodgers doing? The Dodgers (laughs) are ruining the sport. So whenever you're that mixed on something you never truly know where it's going to go i think there will be some sort of guideline or regulation put in place if otani rule <laughs> if n- not just based on otani because i think the league is like okay good for him like he's trying right. to win he's trying yeah. to set himself up in la he's trying to make a legacy of winning rather than just individual performance with the dodgers so good good on otani good on the guy we're trying to market as the face of the sport for doing something like this but if it goes beyond him if this becomes the norm where Soto next offseason is getting 800 million and like 750 deferred I think there's going to be some regulation down the road we can't get that ludicrous where there's not some rule explaining what's allowed and what's not allowed I think if it becomes a theme you're going to see something but for now we're just going to take it for what it is and Otani will be remembered as the guy 
who took all these deferrals. Because, again, who else is going to get $700 million and then take 680 and defer it? Otani was in a unique spot where he could do that, and he had the luxury of getting paid $700 million, which no one else in the sport could, could realistically say. I think if two or three more megastars get to that point, and it's all deferral money, almost all deferral money, the league will step in, not in a obtrusive way, but in the next collective bargaining or some sort of revision, they'll they'll do something about it. For now, I think they're going to let it let it stand as is. Yeah, I think it might. They were talking about it earlier today on the radio that there might be like a tax. Like some people say, oh, this is like a way to. Uh, it's like a tax thing. Like this is going to benefit Otani because he only lives in LA during the season. He's got residents elsewhere. He won't have to pay taxes or or whatever the situation is. So some yeah, I've seen a lot of articles like this is so great for baseball. It's <laughs> everybody's just kind of like okay. I mean, yeah. the Dodgers get richer, fine. I get it. The Yankees back in the day, you know, people said the same thing about them adding to what they had and and all that. But I don't know. The funny thing with the Dodgers is just how. The COVID ring is the one they've got so far. I mean, they they're doing everything that every fan wants their team to do, which is keep going, keep going at it, keep trying to win. I feel like LA. I joked earlier with a tweet that I uh, posted where uh, I said D back sweep Dodgers, and then I put the Michael Jordan gif where he says, and I took that personal because I feel like the Dodgers are just on a certain mission more so than usual with Otani, Glass. Now they're trying to get Yamamoto. It sounds like uh, they're just they're just in it to try to win it every single i mean every team should be right but yeah uh, and that's why i find it super interesting when people get all critical of the dodgers i understand if you look at it and you're like oh this is going to be unfair for the sport moving forward if other players beyond otani start deferring all this money with big market teams it's gonna be like all right well the rich get richer all the time but the dodgers are doing what every fan base wants their ownership group in their front office to do which is treat a 100 win season where you got bounced in the postseason but a 100 win season a dominant year as a 85 win failure. That's the way they've approached this offseason. They've treated it as if they had a serious down year, but that's a down year for them. They were bouncing the DS. They want to stop getting bounced early in the postseason. They want to double down. They want to stack the deck. They want to make sure that 2020 isn't the only recent ring because they are the model of consistency throughout the league. Every year they're winning 100 games, every year they're in the dance, every year. They're in the same spot with the marquee talent in the league. So they want to make sure we're stacking more than just one ring in a shortened season. And we have more than that to show for it. And I think they're going about it the right way. Any fan, if you inserted yourself in the Dodgers fans' shoes, you would be ecstatic. You would be thrilled. You'd be like, oh, these are just haters coming after us and, and criticizing us for, for going for it year after year. So they're the model of, of, of what you want to do. And I think... You know, it's good. I, this is something that I think would annoy a lot of people, but it's good for the sport. Having the Dodgers and the big market teams on the biggest stage, that's how you expand your reach. If it's going to be a Yankees-Dodgers World Series in 2024 and Yamamoto's in the pinstripes and Otani is with the Dodgers the and you've got yeah. the, two biggest, <laughs> the two biggest brands in the league clashing head-to-head for all the marbles and not only for this country, but globally – the sport. Imagine a Yamamoto Otani matchup in the World Series. Like, uh, how cool uh, would that be? I yeah. understand people get tired of the big markets. They get tired of the Yankees. They get tired of the Dodgers, and they say, "Screw them. We don't want to see them again." But yeah. I think it's amazing for the sport. Not every year, but in a year like 2024, if you got a Yankees Dodgers World Series with those circumstances, I think that would be awesome. That'd be theater.
Well, you know, you're right because people get tired of the Yankees and the Red Sox and, and all those teams, but then they they get mad when it's Arizona and Texas in the World Series. Yeah, like, what do you want? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what do you want? You're going to complain that this World Series is obscure. And I'll give it to some people. Some people who are like diehard baseball fans on Twitter will say, oh, we love, we love the Arizona-Texas matchup. What are you, all you baseball haters, you, you casual baseball fans who don't like this matchup? But clearly the ratings would indicate that is not the desired matchup in the World Series. So these people don't want that matchup. But then they also don't want Yankees-Dodgers. So we, we almost got to pick a lane, and we got to be happy with, look, if you don't like the Yankees or the Dodgers, fine. But I think if you are that attached to the league where you're excited about Arizona-Texas in the World Series, you can find something to be excited about for Yankees-Dodgers. And you're going to enjoy that series as much as you hate to admit it because the star power is going to be so great. And if you're an anti-Yankee guy, you'll root for the Dodgers or anti-Dodgers, vice versa. And you will pick a side and you will enjoy that series. And the league and the ratings is going to be all better for it. I actually did pick or uh, predict, jokingly predicted, Texas-Arizona World Series in like June on Twitter to like this this person I know that's a Rangers fan. I said Texas should back. You should have capitalized on that more, man. You were probably oh, the I... only person who <laughs> predicted that in June. I was retweeting it a few times. I'll show you later, but I'll send it to you. But... Uh, <laughs> I think I think the one World Series that everybody universally kind of rallied around was 2016 Cubs in Cleveland, just because. I mean, how can you? That you was know, a gr- like, that was a great series, by the way. Oh, okay. Like, like okay. that was baseball. That was baseball zen for me, from an outsider not seeing any of the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, it, none of that. That was that was the matchup for me. Are you surprised by the Cubs' inactivity so far in the free agency? I don't know if you've really kind of. Uh, tapped into what they're doing but they got they got Craig Council and now everybody's like all right what are we doing now <laughs> yeah th- that's a good question and I think they've been talked about as a team that could be a sneaky spender in the next couple of years I think they've been in on some of these guys like I think they were in on Otani but now looking at it hindsight I don't think anybody was truly getting Otani that wasn't named the Dodgers with with what they were giving him it just wasn't happening but I think the Cubs wanted him I think they were willing to bid extremely high for him. Yeah, I, Their team I would still look at and say, okay, what are they going to do the rest of the offseason? If they strike out, what does next offseason look like? Because I think they're going to be a big-time spender. And there are some big names on the free agent market next offseason, especially on the pitching front, that I could see the Cubs going in on. Yeah, because, I mean, I get, like, Otani was the extreme outlier. We get it. Um, and Glass now, they were, they were linked to him, but then he's got the injury concerns and all that. And then with Bellinger, he's still out there, but it's also like, is he going to replicate what he did last year? If he goes somewhere else, maybe it's not the worst thing. But then it's like, you got to sign someone. You got you to take that chance on someone at the same time. So it's kind of like, you could kind of defend each move that they haven't or could make, but at some point, it's like everything's a risk at this point. Yeah, I'm curious about the Bellinger market because it hasn't really materialized. Not that the Yankees have Soto and Verdugo, it's seems like they've been taken out of that mix they already had reported concerns about him and some of the underlying statistics so if it continues to be a slow stagnant Bellinger market does that play to the Cubs advantage where they could get him back maybe a little cheaper for a reunion who knows but I think they're waiting I think they're being smart about it because if they were going to get Otani they would have gotten him but he was going to be a Dodger they're waiting for the right move and that may not present itself this offseason but they have money to spend, and I think you're going to see them, if they're in on high-end pitching, 
this offseason and they don't get what they want, there's a lot of high-end pitching next offseason, and it might be smarter money. Um, so I'm taking you back to 4th of July really fast. Um, did you say on the radio that <laughs> that you like, was it your hamburger or your hot dog without any condiments on it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, were you listening at like 2.40 in the morning when I said that? Gotcha. I don't know what time it was, but I do remember hearing that. And yeah, I yeah think I'm, it was... I'm ballparking that it was 2.40 in the morning because that was a 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift. That was actually yeah. after a Yankee post game. I went straight to the fan yeah. that day and did the overnight uh, shift. I, yes, yeah. I am I am vehement in that, in that take and that opinion. Look, <laughs> if you have a burger, if you have a hot dog, if you have a steak, and you need a condiment on top of it to make yourself, I guess, feel better or to make it taste better, that means inherently that the burger the hot dog, the steak, is not good enough. Like, a plain burger should be good enough for straight consumption without a condiment, or else it's not good enough as a burger. Now, people rail on me and they say, of course, it's a given that a mustard or or ketchup has to be on a burger, and it's part of the overall experience. I, I understand what you're saying, but it's not part of my experience. If you have a good burger, if you have a good hot dog, if you have a good steak, you're just insulting it by squirting mustard on top of it or a1 <laughs> sauce on a steak that is insulting to the integrity of the burger the hot dog or the steak because that should be able to speak for itself and that should be good enough on its own merit so that was more of my more of my opinion and then you get people who are crazy everyone has their food takes but that is that is my food take well you know i i've been lazy enough to where i was like i don't want condiments i'm just gonna eat it without it because I, I can like it without it but then i'm up I, I i like them too so i could go either way but um uh, I know in Chicago they don't like ketchup on hot dogs or whatever, so you'd fit right right in there at least from the ketchup perspective. <laughs> yeah, go go those people. I, I I'm I'm with those people and their their lack of condiment fandom. I, I just think if you have a really good burger or hot dog or steak, like the purity of it should speak for itself. I get you. I'm glad you were listening though. I'm glad you. I'm glad. I'm glad you heard that that take at, at what three in the morning. I honestly think it was like after midnight. It, it might have been two a.m. It right. really might have been. I thought it was like a little bit earlier, but even so, I that was one of the ones I definitely was catching live. But uh, yeah, it was awesome to chat again. Yeah. Uh, and also, you might be the first person I've had on like consecutively because I haven't done a lot of podcasting this year. But you were the last one I talked to, and we did it again. So that's awesome. And uh, yeah, can't wait to get this one up. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. And uh, glad we got to, I'm honored to be the first repeat repeat guest on the show. And if you're not the first, you're like one of the very few. It doesn't happen a ton, I don't think. A, so a select really cool club. We love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>